The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Scrambling for survival and TV lawyers. This is Thursday, May 17th, 2018. Thank you very much for your time and for supporting this independent news through the links for my sponsors and through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. Can it be said that he who lives by TV may also die by it? Donald Trump became a household name through a TV show and talks about TV ratings to this day. He watches a lot of TV, albeit mostly Fox News. The New Yorker has insightful reporting this week about how that came to be. The report says that at the start of his presidency, Trump watched all the news channels and got upset about what he saw. It upset Sean Spicer and Reince Priebus, now both former Trump officials, to witness Trump's anger, so they encouraged him to just watch Fox and stay away from the rest. The New Yorker says Spicer and Priebus persuaded Trump that Fox had big ratings and was a great way to connect with his voter base. But in so doing, the New Yorker reports that the former chief of staff and the former press secretary had created a new problem. A president who'd come into the office each morning fired up about something that was not on his day's agenda, foisting those issues onto an unprepared staff because he had seen it on TV. And by TV, we mean mostly Fox. Trump's love for the Fox and Friends morning show is well documented, but his primetime darling is Sean Hannity at 9 p.m., it's Hannity's show that makes Trump ever more convinced that he's the target of a witch hunt by a deep state coup, by a system too corrupt to prosecute Hillary Clinton for something, and convinced that the news media is in the pockets of a democratic deep state. And Trump staffers tell The New Yorker Trump talks about 20 times a day about that FBI raid on Michael Cohen's office, also a favorite topic of Hannity's. Trump and Hannity are still a thing, according to this article, often speaking by phone several times a day. Hannity has Trump's number, literally and perhaps figuratively. They phone chat after every Hannity show at 10 p.m. Hannity reportedly helps the president decompress in these conversations. One White House official told the magazine Hannity fills the void left by the exit of strategist Steve Bannon and that Hannity is as important to Trump as some of his top White House advisors. One official called the bromance an effed up feedback loop. What Trump is not seeing is the news. From NBC, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and others. What Trump isn't seeing on Fox is that the Mueller probe moves forward methodically and so quietly we learn of its progress months after that progress has been made. What little we have seen of Mueller's work we've seen on three to six month delay, which raises the question, where is Mueller's progress now? It'll likely be three to six months before we know. There's a lot we already know, however, and we learned a lot of it this week. We know the Mueller team has issued dual subpoenas for Roger Stone's social media expert. Now, if you haven't kept a scorecard, Roger Stone is a longtime close advisor to Trump and had contact with WikiLeaks around the time of the pre-election dumping of Democratic emails stolen by Russian hackers. In fact, Stone had seemingly predicted the dump on Twitter just days before it happened. And it did happen... 30 minutes after the release of the Access Hollywood tape that might have otherwise destroyed Trump's campaign. That social media expert for Roger Stone is Jason Sullivan, and he's now gotten not one but two grand jury subpoenas to testify under oath for Robert Mueller in the Russia investigation. Roger Stone has not been subpoenaed. Yet. We also know that the Mueller team scored a victory over Paul Manafort this week, who had argued the Russia investigators had overstepped their bounds and that, therefore, the criminal charges against Manafort should be dropped. A federal judge in Virginia ruled against Manafort and in favor of Mueller. Trump's former campaign manager will now stand trial for bank fraud, money laundering, and failing to register as a foreign agent. The Justice Department and the FBI are now investigating the cyber politics firm that worked for the Trump campaign. It's no surprise that Cambridge Analytica is being investigated after it swept up the data from more than 50 million Facebook profiles and got caught on video offering political dirty tricks, including black voter suppression. These investigations appear to focus on the company's financial dealings based on that video evidence that bribery and seduction were among Cambridge Analytica's tools. Cambridge Analytica worked for other Republican candidates in 2016 in addition to Trump. Its top researcher is based in Russia.
And we heard from the Senate Intelligence Committee this week, which issued 2,500 pages of transcripts and other evidence from its chat with Donald Trump Jr. The junior Trump testified for the committee behind closed doors last fall. The investigators were focused on that June 26 meeting in Trump Tower between Russians and the candidate's son, son-in-law, and campaign manager. That's the meeting Don Jr. eagerly took, believing the Russians would bring dirt on Hillary. Or as Jr. told the committee, I thought I should listen to the extent they had information concerning the fitness of a presidential candidate. And Don Jr. told the Senate investigators the meeting was really about Americans adopting Russian children again. Kremlin lawyer Natalia Veselnitskaya told the committee the meeting was about U.S. sanctions on Russia. Those stories do not match. Don Jr. says he does not remember whether he spoke with his dad about that meeting. He told investigators he does not remember if a uniquely timed phone call from a blocked number was from his dad. He says he doesn't remember if his dad used a blocked number. And Jr. told the senators his father may very well have had a hand in crafting that misleading statement declaring Jr.'s innocence inside that June Trump Tower meeting. The Senate committee found that the top lawyer in the Trump campaign, Rob Goldstone, was working furiously a month before word got out about that Trump Tower meeting. He was working furiously to piece together a complete list of exactly who was at that meeting and what was discussed. That's what he, Rob Goldstone, told the committee. Goldstone is also on record as having said the meeting was a bad idea. The Senate Intelligence Committee report also included a set of notes from the cell phone of then-Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort, who was at that meeting with Junior Jared and the Russians. Among the highlights from this cryptic list from Manafort, offshore Cyprus, not invest, loan, the word illicit but without the T, active sponsors of RNC, tied to Cheney, and at the very, very bottom of Manafort's list, Russian adoption by American families. This report from the more honest intelligence committee is, unlike the report from its counterpart in the House, a bipartisan report approved by the committee's Republican chairman, Chuck Grassley. The Senate report also sharply contradicts the House version, declaring that Russia did interfere with our 2016 presidential election and worked to help Trump in that effort. We've also gotten confirmation that Trump, as president, reimbursed Michael Cohen between $100,000 and $250,000 after Cohen's $130,000 hush money payment to Stormy Daniels. The notation says that includes a repaid debt and incidental expenses. This new information was in Trump's annual financial disclosure report required by law, unlike the release of his tax returns, which are still hidden from the view of taxpayers and voters. This disclosure to the ethics office did not specify that the money was for Stormy, just that it was a reimbursement, one that coincides with Cohen's payment to the porn star. The payoff was made just before Election Day 2016. Just a month ago on Air Force One, Trump assured reporters and the American people that he knew nothing about the payment to Stormy Daniels and did not know where Cohen got the money. His financial disclosure is written proof bearing Trump's signature that he was lying on Air Force One. It also shows he didn't report Cohen's loan in his disclosure statement the year before. The Office of Government Ethics has now turned Trump's financial disclosure, complete with this information, over to the Justice Department for use in, quote, any inquiry it might be pursuing. When... Rudy Giuliani stumbled in his TV defense of Donald Trump. He also stumbled on behalf of his actual job at a law firm. The partners at Greenberg Traurig were not happy about Giuliani saying publicly that payoffs like the one Cohen made to the porn star were common practice at his law firm. His law firm suddenly announced that Giuliani had resigned right after it got a call from the New York Times asking if that was true about hush money being routine at Greenberg Traurig. No was the resounding answer from Giuliani's ex-employer, which says it cannot speak for whatever he might have done. In the meantime, the Washington Post reports that Trump has told his associates privately that he needs a better TV lawyer to defend him publicly against the Russia probe. His words, TV lawyer. The Post bases its reporting on nearly two dozen sources from the White House, the Department of Justice, and 
Trump lawyers in France, they describe Trump as scrambling for survival and say he's wishing for better TV lawyers to defend him on cable news shows. That was supposed to have been Rudy Giuliani's job, but Giuliani's already contradicted himself and Trump and seemed to accidentally offer up incriminating comments about his client. Trump liked Rudy's aggressive enthusiasm, though, and still reportedly wants a better TV lawyer, several if he can get them, because Trump's entire political life revolves around what gets said on TV. TV is what he lives by. Following the money in Cohen's payment to Stormy Daniels has led the Mueller investigation to a Russian oligarch who paid Cohen for a connection to the Trump White House. Also paying Cohen, a Korean aerospace firm, AT&T, Novartis Pharmaceutical, and a D.C. law firm that lobbies for corporations. Cohen had been Trump's right-hand man for decades, Trump's fixer for all kinds of things, including Stormy Daniels and Playboy's Karen McDougal. The New York Times reports it's now been able to confirm nearly every claim that Stormy Daniels' lawyer has made, and it has led the Russia investigation to find Cohen taking money for access to the new president, including a half million from a billionaire connected to Vladimir Putin. We now know that Cohen, who had dreams of being Trump's White House chief of staff, but got no job at all, used his relationship with Trump to try to make millions of dollars selling influence, People who heard Cohen's sales pitch describe it as, I don't know who's been representing you, but you should fire them all. I'm the guy you should hire. I'm closest to the president. I'm his personal lawyer. Quoting a former Trump campaign official, you don't need access. All you need is the perception of access. That was fine with Cohen since his calls to the White House were no longer being returned. Even without access to the White House, Cohen had convinced AT&T he could help them with their merger with Time Warner and that pesky net neutrality rule. He'd told Novartis he could advise it on navigating the new president's health care policies. It also had some drugs it would like to get approved quickly. Novartis paid Cohen over a million dollars. AT&T had paid him well over a half million. Both AT&T and Novartis now call their contracts with Cohen a big mistake and or a waste of money. A lawyer at Norvartis who was party to the Cohen deal has now retired. AT&T says its reputation has been damaged and it has removed the executive who hired Michael Cohen. Also, both AT&T and Novartis expected Clinton to win. They were not prepared for a president who'd campaigned on shutting out special interest groups. As it turns out, those corporate fears were unfounded. The Trump administration has been more than generous with corporate America, even without the help of Michael Cohen. It's worth noting that at least one big company turned down Cohen's sales pitch, the Ford Motor Company. That's what the Mueller investigation found as it reviewed evidence from Michael Cohen, who had paid off Stormy Daniels while accepting millions from big business and Russia. And another claim by Stormy Daniels lawyer Michael Avenatti has been confirmed as true. It's not the only thing Avenetti's gotten right. Stormy's lawyer tweeted several times this week about a wealthy businessman from the Middle East country of Qatar, a man closely connected with the Qatari government who met with Trump transition officials in Trump Tower in December of 2016. His name is Ahmed Al-Rumehi, and he wanted to meet officials in the new Trump administration. He specifically really wanted to meet this Steve Bannon fellow. In one of the Trump Tower meetings, a witness says, quote, Michael Cohen briefly popped in. It's the same Michael Cohen who'd been making connection pitches to AT&T and Novartis and the Korean airplane factory and the Russian billionaire. Cohen had no official role in the campaign or the transition or the administration. He's not a lobbyist and he's not registered as a foreign agent, but he was there with the rich foreigner. Former National Security Advisor Mike Flynn was at one of those meetings and after those meetings in Trump Tower, Rumehi bragged about having bribed officials of the new administration. Apparently, Mike Flynn, according to what Avenetti describes as a sworn declaration filed in court. Trump fixer Michael Cohen had taken big money from a sanctioned Russian billionaire tied to Putin, and he was not alone. Other Trump associates were shopping their services after not getting jobs in the Trump administration. A former senior Trump campaign and transition aide recently signed on as a consultant for another sanctioned Russian oligarch, oil and aluminum king Oleg Deripaska, also tied to Putin. 
That former senior aide is Brian Lanza, who's now lobbying on Deripaska's behalf in this country. If his name is familiar, it's because Brian Lanza had also been a political contributor for CNN, a recurring conservative talking head. Trump's first campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski, has also opened a D.C. consulting firm since the election. Lewandowski reportedly pitched clients by saying, Trump doesn't make a decision without checking with me. AT&T says it also heard from Lewandowski but did not hire him as it had Michael Cohen. A longtime lobbyist and fundraiser for Trump in Florida has now opened an office in Washington, D.C. Even more former Trump political workers are in that office as well. The battle continues, meanwhile, between Devin Nunes and the Justice Department over documents related to the ongoing Russia investigation. Republicans on the House Intelligence Committee, because they have oversight duties and security clearance, are demanding to see the papers on a specific investigation while it's in progress. They want to see the papers without redactions. They want to see every word Republican committee members agree with the president, who's called the investigation rigged, and they're demanding what they call transparency. The concern is they could also use that classified information to tip off the president and his lawyers. Law enforcement never shares all of its notes on a specific investigation with any party, even refusing those who claim to have the authority to see it. That is what the Justice Department has done under policy set by Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein and supported by Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Justice officials say they need to protect an American citizen whose life could be endangered by the release of those unredacted notes from the FBI's Russia probe. Nunes now claims he didn't ask for information on any specific individual and is at the same time making threats against those who won't show him everything uncensored. The FBI, Rosenstein, and Sessions are so far refusing to hand over the documents even under the threat of subpoenas and contempt of court charges and impeachment. Republicans have even been calling for Rosenstein's impeachment. Nunes claims officials are lying about their reasons for not handing over the notes that could endanger an ongoing criminal investigation, endanger foreign relations, and endanger the life of an American who's been a longtime source for the U.S. intelligence community, the FBI, and the CIA. Democrats say Nunes is throwing up a smokescreen to try to distract and detract from the Russia probe to discredit the investigation and the investigators. And Rex Tillerson, after taking a breather, was speaking publicly yesterday at the Virginia Military Institute in Lexington, Virginia. He warned the students that American democracy is under threat from what he called a growing crisis in ethics and integrity. There was little doubt he was talking about the president and those loyal to Trump. If our leaders conceal the truth or we become accepting of alternative realities that are not grounded in facts, said Tillerson, then we as citizens are on a path to relinquishing our freedom. Tillerson, a former Eagle Scout, had accepted the invitation to deliver VMI's commencement address before he was fired as Trump's Secretary of State. While some Republican voters have soured on Trump, many have also soured on the Mueller investigation. In March, Republican voters wanted Trump to answer questions under oath by a 54% majority. Today, fewer than one in four Republican voters wants that. The approval rating for Mueller among Republicans has dropped from 29% in March to 17% this month. Those numbers are from a new CNN poll. A Quinnipiac poll recently found that more than 60% of Republicans described the Mueller probe as unfair. But those Republican views do not reflect the nation. More than 90% of Democrats still think Trump should testify, and they have the backing of three out of four independent voters. Interestingly, in the past two months, the number of Democrats approving of the Mueller probe has actually dropped about five points, perhaps from frustration or fatigue, while independent voters increased their support of the probe by about two points. Nearly half the independent voters approve of the investigation, and that number has grown this spring. America divides over Trump's reputation for lying. 75% of Republicans believe Trump mostly speaks the truth about the Russia probe. 84% of Democrats believe he has mostly lied about Russia. But America unites on the results of the Mueller probe and whether they should be made public. Making public, the Mueller report is favored by 93% of Democrats, 86% of independents, and 72% of Republicans. 
Vice President Mike Pence wants the investigation to end. He's among that crowd. In the interest of the country, said Pence, I think it's time to wrap it up. Pence says the Michael Cohen scandals are, quote, a private matter, and, quote, something I don't have any knowledge about. The ranking Democrat on the Republican-led House Intelligence Committee strongly objected to Pence's comments. California's Adam Schiff tweeted, with questions concerning which transition officials were aware of Flynn's secret talks with the Russian ambassador still unanswered and new revelations every day, the investigation must continue without his interference. He's talking about Pence both as interferer and as a key member of the transition team. Because Mike Pence was in charge of the transition and vetted Mike Flynn to be Trump's national security advisor even after transition officials had been warned of Flynn's shenanigans. Trump, meanwhile, has literally done less than nothing to stop the cyber attacks of the type we suffered in 2016. To wit, he has just eliminated the cybersecurity job on his White House National Security Council. The email sent out by Trump's new national security advisor, John Bolton, said eliminating the job would streamline authority for the rest of the national security team. In the meantime, Homeland Security has just released its cybersecurity plan with a goal of finishing that work by 2023. The Russians were stoking all kinds of fires in 2016 about guns, Muslims, Hillary, even arguments about Beyonce. In addition to posting pro and con memes about American politics, Russian trolls posted both for and against the singer, all by using the audience targeting tools at Facebook on New York City residents. They focused on blacks and gays and on the people who watch the Fox News channel. Maybe just to see if they could. They moved on to posting for and against Black Lives Matter and Muslims and Confederate monuments and guns and Obama and Clinton and Trump. All told, they focused on at least 146 million people on Facebook and Instagram, sometimes with ads, sometimes with posts. We know all of this thanks to the nearly 3,500 Facebook ads finally released to the public this past week. The ads were reposted as a group so that users could see if they recognized or remembered being caught up in any of the Russian troll-ignited conversations. The Russia investigation by Special Counsel Robert S. Mueller III began one year ago today. Despite the complexity and widespread nature of the case, it's been observed that this investigation is actually moving faster than its predecessors. The Make America Great Again president is known more this week for his focus on trying to help the economies of North Korea and China. Too many jobs in China lost, tweeted Trump, who had previously hyped that China was raping the U.S. Trump has promised to help one Chinese company in particular, phone maker ZTE, which had to shut down under sanctions imposed elsewhere by the U.S. ZTE is the second largest telecommunications company in China. It had broken its deal with the U.S. and lied about it, violated sanctions. It got slapped with a fine of well over a billion dollars and was itself sanctioned for seven months. The company is being punished by the U.S. for selling phones in North Korea, Iran, Syria, Sudan, and Cuba, all nations that use ZTE phones to spy on their citizens, each country under tough trade sanctions from the U.S., ZTE phones have also been banned by the U.S. military for being a, quote, major cybersecurity threat. Over the weekend, Trump promised to help ZTE, quote, a way to get back into business fast. He said he was working with Chinese President Xi to, quote, get it done. Congressman Adam Schiff again weighed in, tweeting at the Make America Again president, you should care more about our national security than Chinese jobs. Why the Trump focus on saving this Chinese telecommunications giant? It's certainly worth noting that China is pumping a half billion dollars into a resort in Indonesia that includes a Trump golf course, Trump condos, and Trump hotels, plural. Trump advisors say they were surprised to hear Trump wanted to lift the sanctions on this Chinese company that he is so distrusted by the Pentagon. They say Trump told them it was partly a personal favor to Chinese President Xi Jinping. Trump was also inclined to help North Korea's economy earlier in the week if the nuclear talks with Kim Jong-un went as well as he'd hoped. 
Trump Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, much, much closer to Trump than Tillerson could have ever managed, said the U.S. wants to have North Korea as a, quote, close partner, not as an enemy. Pompeo made these remarks after securing the release of three Americans who had been imprisoned in North Korea, released by Kim as a goodwill gesture in the run-up to the talks with Trump. Trump said it was probably the best TV ratings ever for 3 a.m. And that's not all Kim did. He announced plans to dismantle his nuclear testing site by May 25th to empty the labs and take down the guard gates. He's even invited American reporters to cover the site's destruction, complete with tunnels collapsed by explosions. Kim's also promised to end all of his unannounced missile tests, forcing airlines to declare the airspace over North Korea a no-fly zone. No longer. Pompeo was also in Pyongyang to finalize details for the talks between Kim and Trump, which were to be held June 12th in Singapore. But things may not go as well as Trump hoped. They may not go at all. Experts always had great skepticism about Kim's willingness to give up all his nuclear weapons and about the chances that Kim would stick to any deal any more than any of his predecessors had done. Kim Jong-un was already unhappy with the Trump administration's insistence on continuing what it calls maximum pressure on North Korea, and Kim's government canceled talks with South Korea and is now threatening to do the same with the U.S., Kim's mad at South Korea over not stopping the joint military exercises with the U.S. on the Korean Peninsula. Earlier, North Korea had told the U.S. and South Korea both it was okay to go ahead with these annual pre-planned drills. Suddenly, it's Kim's reason to call off the talks with South Korea. And North Korea says the talks with Trump are off if the U.S. doesn't stop insisting that Kim give up all his nukes. And now Kim threatens to cancel the talks in which Trump has placed so much political stock. Trump had boasted about the stock market before it took a frightening tumble. Recently, he's boasted about the prospects for peace in the Koreas, and that, too, is now precarious. Trump wasn't finished when he pulled the U.S. out of the Iran nuclear deal. In a cabinet meeting, he's proposed new sanctions on Iran, quote, among the strongest sanctions we've ever put on a country. The highest level of economic sanctions, said Trump, including sanctions on countries that help Iran with its nuclear program, should it restart one. Later that day, Saudi Arabia announced it might develop its own nuclear weapons program if Iran restarts the one it suspended under the nuclear deal that no longer includes the U.S. U.S.-European allies who remain in the Iran deal are not happy with Trump's America at the moment. They will be even less happy if the U.S. also hits them with sanctions. The Trump administration is looking to punish the economies of European countries that get in Trump's way. White House National Security Advisor John Bolton said this week, it's possible European countries will be sanctioned for doing business that's legal in their countries but in violation of U.S. foreign policy unless some or all of those countries were to come around and side with Trump. Quoting Bolton, I think the Europeans will see that's in their best interest, ultimately, to go along with this. Bolton, who has favored war with Iran, if necessary, to secure a regime change there, says, those were my opinions then. I've written and said a lot of things. Bolton says he gives his current opinions only to the president and that only the president makes the decisions. Just a few miles away from where a smiling Jared and Ivanka Trump proudly opened the new U.S. Embassy for Israel in Jerusalem, Palestinians were dying in greater numbers. 40,000 Palestinians had gathered along the Israeli border near Jerusalem to protest the Trump declaration that Jerusalem, not Tel Aviv, was Israel's capital. In so declaring, Trump was recognizing Jerusalem not as a city whose history is shared by Jews, Christians, and Muslims, but as a city that belongs only to Israel— a reversal of decades of U.S. policy. The event brought Palestinian protesters to 13 locations along the Israeli-Gaza border. Israel had warned the protesters not to get too close to the fence, but they did, burning tires and firing slingshots and being bombarded with tear gas canisters and being shot to death by Israeli automatic weapons fire. As it appeared, the border skirmish was winding down. At least 60 Palestinians were dead, including nine children, two of whom were infants. At least nine journalists were injured, as well as 2,700 Palestinians. Israeli forces suffered no injuries and no casualties. The five dozen dead Palestinians join a hundred others who have been killed in the past six weeks along the Gaza Strip. 
Banners on streetlights in Jerusalem, meanwhile, proclaim Trump is making Israel great again. But Trump has also provoked Palestine, which both the U.S. and Israel may come to regret. Trump's provocation appears to do more to hurt the chances for Middle East peace than to help them. Israel's also under pressure over the missiles it has fired into Syria, attacking Iranian outposts following Iran's attack on Israel's Golan Heights region. That shooting started right after Trump announced that the U.S. was pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal, which experts say also endangers Middle East peace. Both Israel and Iran have been asked to take a step back now, both by the United Nations Secretary General and by British Prime Minister Theresa May, who called Netanyahu personally about this. Still ahead, more progress by the gun control movement, the Republican Party's plan for the poor. But first, this week's commentary from Salon.com's Bob Seska. Bob? Thank you, Buzz. Days like these, I often stare at my blank computer screen, unable to zero in on a topic to cover. Clearly, there are way too many tantalizing bombshells bursting forth from the ongoing fire hose of news. As a political writer, I'll never complain about an overly abundant news cycle as long as... The news doesn't involve nuclear brinksmanship or stupefying catastrophes. It's always possible in the Trump era for otherwise innocuous news to build towards such a catastrophe, but with North Korea, the stakes are automatically stratospheric, considering there are nuclear weapons at issue, along with an incompetent doofus with the launch code biscuit in his disgusting pants pocket. Frankly, if we were out of imminent danger, I'd enjoy my job a lot more these days. Today alone, we watched as the GOP-led Senate Intelligence Committee not only determined that Russia attacked our election with the goal of helping the Trump campaign, but the panel also concluded that the National Rifle Association facilitated genuine real-life collusion between the Kremlin and Trump. Simultaneously, we also read further confirmation that Donald Trump Jr. took a meeting with a handful of Russians at Trump Tower with the aim of receiving stolen documents linked to Hillary Clinton. On top of all that, Jr. made a previously undisclosed phone call after the meeting to a blocked phone number, which is speculated to have been Donald Trump himself. As if that wasn't enough, Trump appears to be surrounded by accusations of receiving obvious bribes from both China and, during the campaign, Qatar, which served as a go-between with Russia and Michael Cohen and Michael Flynn. The Qatar deal is reported to be linked to the sale of a 19% share in the Russian state oil company Rosneft. All told, Trump is exploiting the office for a frantic cash grab, and Cohen is one of the grabbers. Trump is seriously screwed, but my adulation has been tempered by other news. On a day like yesterday, it'd be more satisfying to spend time wallowing in Trump-Russia schadenfreude. North Korea, however, along with Trump's spastic screw-ups regarding the same, collectively renders it nearly impossible to savor an otherwise disastrous day for the cartoon supervillain in the Oval Office. A little more than two months ago, a delegation of South Korean officials met with Trump at the White House and, out of nowhere, announced that seconds earlier, Trump had agreed to a summit meeting with Kim Jong-un. Over the subsequent weeks, new events transpired on that front, including then-outgoing CIA director and current Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's secret trip to Pyongyang, where he met with Kim and was photographed with the leader. Likewise, both Trump and his Red Hat Army began clearing space in the Oval Office for Trump's inevitable Nobel Peace Prize. The Olympics in Pyeongchang were held somewhere in there, too. Eventually, the South Korean President Moon Jae-in and Kim Jong-un officially shook hands during a photo op at the demilitarized zone between the North and the South. And finally, Kim freed three hostages, giving Trump another photo op to go along with his, you know, soon-to-be Nobel Prize. When the first word of a possible summit emerged from that awkwardly impromptu press gaggle with the South Koreans at the White House, many of us who've been covering Trump for some time immediately knew exactly how this had all play out. In particular, I knew there was no chance this new North Korea narrative would play out the way the Trumpers wanted it to. But there were more than a few observers who thought Trump and Kim would finally deliver peace to the world and a nuclear-free Korean peninsula. So they preached hope. Clearly, these cup-half-full voices forgot which despots they were dealing with here. I hate to be that guy, but we tried to tell you. The warning signs were crystal clear. For one, Trump always makes things worse for Trump. Based on that rule, I thought at the time, Trump would absolutely screw the pooch and ruin the whole damn thing. 
Either that or Kim and his benefactor, President Xi of China, were just playing Trump like the easily manipulated sucker slash doofus he is. Turns out both observations were accurate. Shocker. Of course, Trump stupidly heightened the stakes of the summit to the end game of denuclearization, as if Kim had already pledged such a thing. Trump also prematurely defined the mere possibility of a meeting as a success in and of itself, not realizing that previous presidents could have easily met with Kim, but refused because of a long list of reasons beginning and ending with exactly the quicksand pit Trump has stupidly fallen into. Trump's fellow Republicans, both on the Hill and in the conservative entertainment complex, didn't help either, nattering on and on about a Nobel Prize. Taken as a whole, Trump spiked the nuclear football on the 20-yard line. And now Kim has not only pulled out of the talks with South Korea due to annual military exercises, a flimsy excuse, but Kim doesn't need a better one. Likewise, Kim is insisting that any summit with Trump will not include talk of denuclearization, the specific goal Trump idiotically established in the press and among his supporters as the end-all be-all of the summit. Simply put, Trump played right into Kim's hands and the world remains under the threat of a nuke-capable Kim, partly due to the obvious nincompoopery of the Trump White House. Back to the cup-half-full people. Did they honestly believe Trump would stumble into brokering denuclearization via gump-like happenstance? Sure. They also believed Kim was sincere about all this, even though his ulterior motive was to paint Trump into a corner and to make it seem as if Kim's nuclear technology and bellicose threats successfully brought the imperialist Americans, led by doddered Trump, to their knees. At long last, can we please stop overestimating Trump? The lesson here is for the true believers on both sides to stop making asses of themselves by routinely thinking Trump will either pivot to being more presidential or suddenly grow some functioning gray matter, flowers for Algernon style, enough to successfully handle one of the most difficult and nuanced jobs in the world. Don't forget, we're dealing with a white-collar criminal who doesn't realize how truly awful he is at being a white-collar criminal. He can't even break the law in a way that doesn't explode in his face. He's never once deserved the benefit of the doubt. If you disagree, name one case. His successes are generally the result of deeds done by other people, thanks Obama, and never ever achieved through his own chaotic, improvised bullshit process. Nevertheless, we should always embrace this rule and will never go wrong. Trump always makes things worse for Trump. And in this case, as with so many others, Trump is a national security threat and his every decision makes the world much less safe. I wish I could lean back and smile at the epic failure of Trump to handle talks with North Korea, but the stakes haven't changed. We're still dealing with two erratic despots, Trump and Kim who each have the capability to annihilate millions and millions of people. Oh, and by the way, that voice, it's obviously saying Laurel, not Yanny. Duh. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Get more of him at Salon.com and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at RealmNetwork.com. Join me with him there every Tuesday. Well, the applications are pouring in, asking for exemptions and waivers from Trump's new high tariffs on steel and aluminum imported from countries as far-flung as Switzerland and China. But these exemption requests are coming from American companies whose business will suffer at the hands of Trump's attempt to art a better deal in international trade. One U.S. steel industry lawyer calls it a tsunami. Thousands of American companies asking now to be exempt from a 10 to 25% new tax on foreign metals. Metals for making rails and girders and washing machines and bolts and screws and springs. Nearly 1,500 U.S. companies have already asked to be excused, at least one executive saying he looked all over the U.S. but could only find the steel he needs for his work from China. These requests for waivers will land on the desk of Wilbur Ross's Commerce Department to process them and to decide which American companies will get mercy and which ones will not. Ross says he will do what he can to protect American business. In the meantime, many Americans are worried about prices and cutbacks and their jobs. American military veterans took note when they heard reports that a White House press aide had said that John McCain's views on a CIA nomination didn't matter because he was going to die anyway. 
As chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, McCain is making what may be his last stand against Trump's choice for a new CIA director. Gina Haspel had overseen a facility in which a suspect was tortured more than 80 times only to reveal he knew nothing. And it was Haspel who gave the orders to destroy the video evidence. She's likely to be confirmed as the new head of the CIA now, having picked up two Democrats on the Intelligence Committee, including Virginia Senator Mark Warner, who believes Haspel will not be another yes-man for Trump. After getting an upvote from that committee, Haspel's nomination advances to a floor vote, and Trump gets his new CIA director. As a former tortured prisoner of war, John McCain strongly objects even after hearing her testimony before his committee. It doesn't matter, said White House Communications aide Kelly Sadler. He's dying anyway. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, a close friend of McCain's, called Sadler's comments pretty disgusting. McCain's daughter Megan called for Sadler's resignation. That hasn't happened. What has happened is an apparently angry tweet by Trump that went, the so-called leaks coming out of the White House are a massive over-exaggeration put out by the fake news media in order to make us look bad as possible. With that being said, leakers are traitors and cowards, and we will find out who they are, end quote. In one sentence or two, Trump was simultaneously saying that there are no leaks and that the people who are leaking are traitors and cowards. He may also have been on to something. CNN reports that the leak that revealed what Kelly Sadler had said about John McCain was just one of many, many leaks to come from this White House. The Mueller probe never leaks to the great frustration of a White House that can't seem to plug its own. West Wingers are required to leave their phones in lockers when they arrive at work, and men in dark suits cruise through a couple of times a day with equipment to scan for any devices that might have slipped through security. And still there are leaks. During breaks, staffers slip out to the lockers to check their phones for messages and texts, or they go out to their cars because they keep their phones there. John McCain, meanwhile, is still fighting, telling his fellow Republicans they are on the wrong side of the immigration debate. Well, the campaigning has begun. Oh, but not just for the House and Senate seats and state offices up for grabs in the election that's now just over five months away. At a Donald Trump campaign rally, Trump announced to the crowd his 2020 re-election slogan, Keeping America Great. The slogan had actually been revealed two months ago, but this was the first time Trump got to say it at a campaign rally. A rally not so much for the midterm elections in which Republicans are feeling vulnerable but for his planned second run in 2020. Trump had reason to feel triumphant as he looked out over a crowd of 7,000 faithful in Elkhart, Indiana, and Kim Jong-un's release of three American prisoners gave him something new to crow about, which led to his listing of other events he considers accomplishments, including the medals, tariffs, and the Iran reversal. Trump also did put in a word for Republican Mike Brown, who faces Democrat Joe Donnelly for an Indiana Senate seat just five months from now. But Democrats are also doing the 2020 hat dance. In no particular order, Cory Booker, Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Kirsten Gillibrand, Bill de Blasio, and Bernie Sanders. L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti and a litany of Democratic governors and mayors have been out in public more than usual, talking policy more than usual, perhaps to see how it plays. They've been on the late-night talk shows and have gotten up early for the morning radio shows. Even the executive chairman of Starbucks, Howard Schultz, has been speaking publicly lately more about politics than business or coffee. The two top contenders appear to be Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. While Sanders appeals to the most progressive Democrats, Biden is considered the consensus candidate who can capture enough Democrats and independents to beat Trump or, more likely, some other Republican candidate. Well, a lot can change, and nothing is official, but the race is already on for 2020. As for the more important-than-usual midterm primary elections, we are already well into the season. They began March 6th in Texas and picked up steam nine days ago with primaries in Indiana, North Carolina, Ohio, and West Virginia. They continued this week with primary votes cast in Idaho, Nebraska, Oregon, and Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is being very important. The Keystone State is where Democrats got their best shot at getting a majority in the House this fall. 
and Pennsylvanians voted according to a new congressional district map that makes the races more fair, much more fair for Democrats. The Supreme Court ruled that Pennsylvania Republicans had gerrymandered the state to the point that its legislature no longer represented the majority of voters. And that ruling came just as PA was ready to elect a new governor and a new U.S. senator. It's paid off for Democrats and women. Democrats have picked up at least three, maybe as many as six seats in Pennsylvania. A record number of women, though, ran for House seats in Pennsylvania, at least seven of whom won their primaries and now go on to face a Republican in November. Among the women, two top lawyers, an Air Force veteran, and one who's already served as a state representative. Pennsylvania's congressional makeup in the House currently is 100% male. That appears to be on the verge of changing. Women won primaries in Nebraska and Idaho as well. The Democratic field that's falling into place for the coming election is diverse, including moderates and liberals. This fall, they will face Republicans who, judging from their victories this week, will mostly be aligned with Donald Trump. This underscores the importance of voting in these primaries. It's in these elections you can choose between a moderate and a liberal if you're a Democrat or between moderate and conservative if you're a Republican, or whether your Republican candidate is for or against Trump. It was also, by the way, a good night for the more progressive Democratic candidates who bettered their moderate competition in every state voting yesterday. This coming Tuesday, May 22nd, people will be voting in Arkansas, Georgia, and Kentucky. The Republican plan for poverty is to leave it to the impoverished, to show the poor that the answer is pulling themselves up by their bootstraps, focused on taking care of themselves. The Republican plan for food stamps, or the SNAP program as it's now called, is to cut them off for millions of people over the next 10 years and require those people to work a job. Able-bodied adults on SNAP already have work requirements, and for that they get a measly $1.40 per meal, But states have suspended those requirements when the economy goes south, and that's when most people sign up. Many of the people who get food stamps are children, the elderly, and the disabled, who can't work anyway. Texas Republican Mike Conway says the Republican bill is about helping people, saying, we believe breaking this poverty cycle is really important. A poverty expert says it's really just a cost-cutting move after a tax cut that jacked up the federal deficit. The farm bill being floated in the House mostly goes for nutrition programs, and Republicans want to cut $20 million from that spending. The House bill was drawn up behind closed doors and without any Democratic input. The Republican bill would also add layers of paperwork, making food stamps harder to get and easier to lose in a system that already runs surprisingly efficiently with little evidence of fraud. Trump Treasury Secretary Betsy DeVos has put an end to the investigations into fraud by for-profit colleges after rescuing executives from those for-profit colleges into jobs at her education department. The investigation of these colleges was begun during the Obama administration after the discovery of widespread fraud and abuse among for-profit colleges, including DeVry. A number of them, even the large chains, were forced to shut down. A former dean at DeVry now works for the taxpayers in the education department. A top lawyer from another commercial school works there, too, and has not recused herself from issues involving career education, self-named technical institutes like DeVry. Education department work aimed at protecting students from the remaining for-profit colleges is now aimed at protecting the schools from angry students under Trump Education Secretary Betsy DeVos. In other education news, the Trump administration is cracking down on foreigners here as part of a student exchange program and whose visas have expired. Immigration says that unless the students maintain their status, they'll be considered unlawfully present. After 180 days of unlawful presence, they'll be rounded up and shipped back home. The crackdown begins August 9th. And teachers in North Carolina yesterday staged a one-day walkout so they could rally at the state capitol to demand better pay and more money for our schools, which suffered and never recovered during the recession. In fact, teacher pay has effectively dropped 9.5% in North Carolina. The North Carolina teachers who have no collective bargaining power 
say they were inspired by teachers in Kentucky, Oklahoma, Arizona, and West Virginia, where it all began. Yes, we did spend more money on gasoline last month, and it was partly because of higher gas prices. But better weather in much of the country has us out driving more now, too. And gas wasn't the only thing that ate our paychecks. Consumer spending was up last month in the biggest jump of the year. We ate in restaurants more frequently and bought more stuff at stores and online. Retail sales were up nearly 5% compared to April of last year. It's clearly a sign of consumer confidence that's even greater than what experts expected. Gun control activists scored a couple of small victories this week, starting with the money. Investors in the gun manufacturing company Sturm Ruger have voted to require management to conduct a thorough report on gun safety. It's an idea proposed by nuns in Merrillhurst, Oregon, the Sisters of the Holy Names of Jesus and Mary. These Catholic sisters believe that report should include the monitoring of violent events associated with Ruger products. To them, this is a health concern. Sturm Ruger shareholders ran with that idea, including one of the company's biggest investors, the financial firm known as BlackRock. The gun company's CEO went on the defensive, quoting Chris Kilroy, the proposal requires Ruger to prepare a report. That's it, a report. You can almost hear the sigh as he continued, the shareholders have spoken and we will follow through with our obligation to prepare that report in due course. And the Ruger CEO added, what the proposal does not do and cannot do is force us to change our business, which is lawful and constitutionally protected. We await the results of the study. In Oklahoma, the very Republican governor has vetoed a very Republican bill that would have allowed Sooners to carry guns without training and without a license. The law would have allowed felony-free adults to carry a gun in public with just a bare-bones background check. That was a couple steps too far for even Governor Mary Fallon, who was forced to remind voters she owns a pistol, a rifle, and a shotgun. Oklahoma lawmakers, eager to strip the law to just beyond the Second Amendment, had voted overwhelmingly for the new Guns for Everyone bill, and they have enough votes to override their more cautious governor. Meanwhile, the TSA reports it had a record day two weeks ago today. On May 3rd, it seized 26 firearms at 15 airports in one day. Of the 26 guns, 21 were loaded. The fine for not transporting guns correctly is just over $1,300. Marijuana is still illegal in New York, and anyone can get busted for it anywhere. But in Manhattan... Blacks are being arrested 15 times as often as whites for low-level marijuana charges. Hispanics are arrested there five times as often as whites. This according to a new study by the New York Times. The paper found that citywide, blacks are busted for holding eight times as often as whites. Interestingly, the Times found evidence that one reason for this is that police get more complaints about weed in black and Hispanic neighborhoods. But that does not explain the huge gap between whites and non-whites when it comes to who gets arrested for it. Government studies show that blacks and whites use marijuana at about equal rates. Quoting the resident of a high-crime neighborhood, the resources they waste for this are ridiculous. In the Obama administration, the Justice Department had rules designed to protect transgender prison inmates. It isn't the Obama administration anymore, in case you hadn't noticed. Transgender inmates will notice. They will now only be assigned to a prison based on their identity in, quote, rare cases. Most will now be moved to a prison to suit their biological sex, which would clearly put them in greater danger. In a 2011 study, more than a third of transgender inmates in state and federal prisons said they had been sexually assaulted within the past year. The Trump Justice Department ruling came right after the filing of a lawsuit in Texas by Christian inmates at a female prison who said having transgender women among them put them in danger. Net neutrality's last stand, eggs, lettuce, and other gambles. There used to be trees here and some fun stuff in the final segment up next. Increasingly these days, we have to pay for something we used to get free, the news. 
This news comes to you without a paywall and without corporate ownership. Free. So, again, a quick reminder to do all your online shopping by using and bookmarking my Amazon link at buzzburbank.com. This production gets a little commission from Amazon when you do that, so it's very helpful to shop through that link for home, school, church, or office. Now, if you'd prefer not to use Amazon for any reason, please support this free newscast through the PayPal Donate button just beneath the Amazon button at buzzburbank.com. And thank you. The Trump FCC has announced that net neutrality will begin to disappear on June 11th. No one yet knows what will happen with those Obama-era rules gone, but many know what could happen, what is perhaps likely to happen. Higher prices for new services and Internet providers who steer you away from websites and toward others, a kind of censorship by corporation. What could happen is a tougher road for startup companies that cannot afford the accessibility and Internet speeds afforded to the big existing companies. Internet providers, including AT&T, will no longer be considered utilities like water and energy. The resistance to the Trumpian change has not withered, though. Democratic senators voted to force a floor vote on reversing the FCC's recent decision, and nearly two dozen states have filed a petition saying that decision is illegal and should be canceled. With a Republican-controlled Congress and a Republican president, lawmakers' efforts will fail, but they will be on record as having tried. It's a kind of promise to try again, when Democrats may very well have the majority votes in Congress. In the meantime, the lawsuits are much more likely to succeed. The FCC has gone after public enemy number one, though, the robocaller. It's fining Florida's Adrian Abramovich $120 million for his massive and misleading robocall operation. The fine was based on 80,000 spoof calls in late 2016, although the actual count is closer to 96 million robocalls from this guy. Abramovich's calls were disguised to make it appear they were coming from your neighborhood. Quoting the FCC, friendly visitors don't wear disguises. Betting on sports will not stay in Vegas. The U.S. Supreme Court rolled the dice Monday on legal sports betting for the entire country. Under the ruling, in a lawsuit by New Jersey and dozens of other states, the court ruled that any state that chooses may legalize betting on professional sports. The best argument in favor of legal sports betting came out of New Jersey that it's already being done illegally, placing it into the hands of organized crime, about which Chris Christie says New Jersey knows a little bit. New Jersey officials say they will limit sports betting to racetracks and casinos and to people over the age of 21. Place your bets. Speaking of gambling, the E. coli-contaminated romaine lettuce that prompted a recall has now sickened another 28 people, bringing the total to about 150. Continue to avoid it if you're not sure whether it's from Yuma, Arizona, which is the source of that contamination. Also still underway. A salmonella outbreak from contaminated eggs. The CDC says that one has now sickened three dozen people in nine states. Eleven of those people are in hospitals. This past week has seen a dozen new cases of that. There used to be trees here. New research says cities in the U.S. are losing trees at the rate of 36 million a year. In terms of acres... We're losing 175,000 acres of trees each year just in our cities. We're not really losing them. We're cutting them down to build buildings and the roads to accommodate those buildings. Point to a new road, and the chances are there used to be trees there. Trees that help clean the air that we breathe. Since trees have health and happiness benefits for humans, and since four-fifths of Americans live in urban areas, losing trees is bad. Losing this many trees is worse. Trees cut air conditioning bills by nearly a third and heating costs by half. The places losing trees the fastest? Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Oklahoma, and Washington, D.C. When the Pentagon drew up a draft report on the future of military bases, climate change was mentioned in that draft 23 times. In the final version, the phrase only appears once. The other 22 references were changed to just climate or extreme weather. 
Those and other changes were made to de-emphasize the threats that climate change posed to military bases and installations. It de-emphasizes the military risks of the world's melting ice caps and rising seas, food and water shortages that force new migration and war. Trump has dismissed climate change as a Chinese hoax. The Pentagon sees it as real, but is trying to stay out of the public political debate about it, so the Pentagon has cleaned up its language of the report. The report mostly says still what it was written to say. It just doesn't say it as urgently. And that's not the only report the Trump White House has either watered down or suppressed entirely. A lot of us are drinking water that contains toxins that are dangerous in even the smallest amounts. This is most likely true if you live near a military base, a chemical plant, or some other industry that uses these chemicals. These are the findings of a team within the Department of Health and Human Services which thought the public ought to be notified. But the Defense Department and Trump's EPA said no. They said it would put too much pressure on them as agencies and be, quote, a public relations nightmare. You mean like Flint? These are the words of a White House political appointee about what career government professionals had found. Four months later, that contaminated water report has still not been published. The EPA says it's waiting until it has coordinated the various levels of government for a unified response. As expected, the U.S. car industry is among those unhappy about Trump's plan to loosen government standards for fuel economy and pollution. Instead, the car makers want to stay on course for greater economy and cleaner exhaust, and they want the U.S. to adopt California's rules, not the other way around, as the Trump EPA has proposed. California and 16 other states are suing the Trump administration for trying to roll back these Obama-era goals. The car makers had been shooting for 55 miles a gallon by 2025. The Trump proposal puts the goal at less than 42 miles per gallon. Car makers have always complained that air pollution and economy rules were too strict. But now they say the Trump plan takes this too far in the wrong, opposite direction. California, meanwhile, has taken the lead on solar energy with a new rule that requires all condos and apartments of three stories or less to have solar panels. Buildings too small for a solar array will be exempt when the new rule goes into effect at the start of 2020. How much respect we have for the environment is likely reflected in the respect that we display for animals, like not displaying a caged tiger at a high school prom. Dateline, Florida, Miami. Friday night at the Doubletree near the airport, the Christopher Columbus High School prom featured the caged tiger and for photos, a fox, a lemur, and two parrots. The animals were surrounded by 500 partying teenagers and a fire show. Tigers are mortally afraid of fire. The tiger was pacing and agitated. It was a form of abuse, and although school officials have apologized, they insist the tiger was not harmed. But it was disrespected. We now have our first recorded death from e-cigarette vaping. A 38-year-old St. Petersburg, Florida man was killed 12 days ago when his smoke e-mountain vape pen exploded, firing pieces of shrapnel into his brain and setting his house on fire. Injuries from vaping devices are on the rise, with 274 incidents reported in the past five years as the products sometimes burst into flames. The only other known fatality from vaping occurred in the UK inside an oxygen tent. The United States Air Force personnel who guard our nuclear weapons near Minot, North Dakota, are offering a $5,000 reward. They're offering a reward to anyone who can help them locate the grenades that apparently fell off the back of a truck on a gravel road two weeks and two days ago today. The Air Force had waited nearly two weeks to announce the missing grenades after not reporting them to local law enforcement for three days. Instead, the Air Force rounded up 100 airmen to walk the entire six-mile route looking for those grenades. They didn't find them. The grenades were in an army green metal box, but they are highly explosive, designed for use in only one particular type of grenade launcher. The Air Force says that after having fallen off a truck, it is best not to touch that box 
but instead to evacuate the area and give them a call. The man who wrote The Right Stuff, author Tom Wolfe, died this week at the age of 88. After writing news for the Washington Post, Wolfe went on to write about LSD in The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test and then The Right Stuff about America's first astronauts. He'd been working on a new book about political correctness, which he promised would be quite funny. We also lost this week Canadian-born actress Margot Kidder, dead of unknown causes. Kidder flew into stardom in the 1978 movie Superman with Christopher Reeve, plus two sequels. She starred opposite James Brolin in The Amityville Horror. Margot Kidder, gone at 69. The latest Avengers movie was again the top draw this week in U.S. and Canadian theaters, raking in another $62 million. That brings worldwide ticket sales to nearly one and two-thirds billion dollars, most of that outside North America. Life of the Party was in second place, but below that magic $20 million mark, A Quiet Place has fallen to fifth, Black Panther to ninth. To see trailers, to find a theater, check showtimes, or buy tickets, please go through my Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. Well, thanks to Emma Watson's appearance in the first Harry Potter movie, the years since have seen Emma as the most popular name for newborn girls in the U.S. It's been number one for four years, Emma. Emma, Olivia, and Ava are still first this year, second, third, and favorite baby girl names on this year's list from the Social Security Administration. The once popular named Emily no longer even appears in the girls' top ten. One of the five fastest rising names on that list, Melania. It jumped up the list by 720 points. Liam is now the most popular boy's name, followed by Noah, which was last year's list topper, and William now ranks third. For the first time since World War II, the name Michael has fallen out of the boys' top ten. People are now more likely to name their boys Elijah or Oliver or Logan or Mason. Evelyn is in the top ten for girls for the first time since 1915, surrounded by Charlottes and Abigails and Amelias. A truck in Nevada hit a guardrail and spilled, no, not grenades, but dimes. Eight million dimes. $800,000 worth of dimes. State troopers cordoned off the area to keep the dimes in and the scavengers out while they called a recovery team at the Treasury Department. In other news, the Treasury Department has recovery teams. It was not hot enough to bake cookies on the pavement when a truck spilled raw cookie dough on a highway in North Carolina this week. At least it wasn't live grenades. The truck had been stopped at a red light. When it began to move forward on the green, the back door came open and 20 wheeled carts tumbled out, each filled with raw cookie dough. No one got injured, but it turned out not to be fun rolling in dough. And finally, a lower-tech solution to a low-tech problem. After someone hacked an electric highway sign along I-95 in Ridley Park, Pennsylvania this week, officials solved the problem quickly. They just turned the sign to face a wall where no one could see the crude message. At least that was the solution when it happened the second time on the same day. Officials are now investigating... The sign, which was to have warned motorists about an upcoming detour, had been reprogrammed to instruct Delaware County to perform fellatio. Let's let's word it like that. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and for supporting my sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.